And now, the Sleephawk Worldwide Podcast. Here are your hosts, Brandon Staten and Tyler Hensbro. What's up, Sleephawk? It's the Hawk. And we are here with an amazing guest. I'm flying solo today. Uh, Big Sleep Dog is on his honeymoon. I got Pablo with me. Uh, He's taking care of me. But we got a very special guest today. Um, He is my uncle, and he is also a three-time world long drive champion. Uh, He is also the first person to ever hit over a 400-yard long drive in competition. Uh, We're excited to have him. Um, His legal name is Sean Fister, but he goes by the Beast. Uh, If you call him Sean, you better be family. Uh, (laughs) Beast, thanks for coming on the show. It is an absolute honor to have you on. And you are, uh, I'm just going to start off by asking you, how did you get into golf? I know your story is unique. Uh, Very few people can just go to the range and just start drilling balls. you know, it's, it's very difficult. So tell everybody how you got into golf and more specifically, what led you to long driving? Well, you know, it's kind of a, an accident really, because I, I didn't play golf at all in high school growing up at all. And, um, I had been a pole vaulter and decathlete at the university of Florida. And I trained for a little while after college and I actually had a pole vaulting accident and broke my back and I had to give up uh, track and field. And I came home and my younger brother, Corby had just gotten finished with playing pro baseball and he was in town. He started playing golf and he said, you can come play golf. And I was like, man, I've never played that. And we ended up out on the municipal golf course in Popper bluff. And, uh, the first day I played, I drove a par four that was 345 yards in the air. And there was a little lake down there and, um, that I hit over and, my uh, high school track coach had had told me, you don't understand how far that is. He said, I've been playing golf my whole life. I've never seen a ball go that far. Well, you know, that kind of spurred me on because I, when I started playing more and more, I, all I wanted to do was just kill it. And I ended up driving all these greens, and I wasn't playing very well, but I was, you know, I, I came up with this answer to people that said, you know, golf is not that hard. You just drive the green and three-putt. And you make pars, you know, you'd be, you do good. <laughs> so I, I had that mentality. And plus, as you know, Tyler, we've got a pretty, pretty talented family lineage because my dad and his, my grandfather both played pro baseball and Corby played. And, you know, we just, they were all hitters. So I kind of gained a little bit of the natural ability, I guess, but, uh, that's kind of how it started and I just fell in love with hitting it far and I always viewed it as a as a home run hitting contest and every Thanksgiving my brothers and I would go out and have a home run derby and uh, so you know I've been hitting balls hard most of my adult life and playing softball and all that jazz but you know there's a lot more to the sport I'd find out later uh, of long driving that's uh you know, you have to hit it in between the the fair in the fairway, which is, is is a grid. It's about forty yards wide, and when you look out the fairway, about four hundred yards, you know, it looks like a doorway from that distance. So that's kind of that's kind of how it got going. I got a question: Did anybody ever teach you mechanics, or is that something um, that you just kind of, you know, just kind of naturally? 
um, built yourself? Because I've heard some golfers, you know, I think Bubba Watson never had a golf lesson ever. And yeah, I didn't either. I didn't either. And, you know, I, I always had a powerful swing and, Later on, people that know the technique and stuff in golf. And one time, I was hitting balls in front of Jack Nicholas, and he watched me hit. And he turned to turned to this guy, and he said, "Those guys got the fastest hands I've ever seen through impact." So you know, he's he's the man. And if he says that, he's probably right. So I, I got most of my speed from my hands. And as far you know, I, I I won a few competitions here and there, but I didn't win the world championship right off. And um, it took me a while, and once I started tweaking my technique and tweaking the equipment to fit my technique and and then actually slowing down a little bit instead of swinging all out, when I backed off to about 85 or 90% and started hitting it solid, that's when I started winning competitions. And I can tell you, um, if anybody watches me play basketball, they know how emotional and, and you know, how – passionate I play I think my uncle Sean he brings that same type of mentality to long driving and so anybody knows our family you know once we get those competitive juices flowing you can see it and you can see you get excited um and I remember one year I think it was uh it was I was watching on Christmas and uh, I'm not sure which one it was but you won the thing so you get just tell somebody how the long drive competition is set up because you are the OG. You're one of the original guys to bring a lot of popularity to this sport. Now it's gotten a little more popular and you'll see a bunch of guys out there, but you were from the start and you won the competition on your last drive. And I think you might've been the last uh, long driver to hit that day. And I remember watching that and seeing your excitement. Um, Just tell everybody uh, how the, First of all, the format, and then the year you won it on your last uh, attempt. Well, the, the, you know, every year you start off uh, at scratch. So whether you win or not or, you know, whatever you've accomplished, you don't get any buys or anything. You have to, you have to fight your way through, and it's not that easy. There's At the time in my peak, there were hitters from 30 countries – and the and these guys are working hard on it all year long. The way that the competition, you start off and you go to a local qualifier, so you would get uh, six balls in five minutes, and you hit those six balls, and you have to hit. It only takes one longest one to count, and if you beat the other three guys in your little group there, you advance to the next. So it works a lot like an NCAA bracket. Mm-hmm. So you got all the guys listed down. And you go against another guy, or three or four guys on the tee, and then uh, two guys advance, and then it just continues that way all the way until they get you to the the semifinals, and uh, so the top sixteen hitters get on TV. And it was even harder than that when I started. It was only I think eight got on TV, but uh, once you get to the last round and the final eight on TV. That they put that they put on TV that, that you have the same five minutes to hit a ball, but they they turn it into match play then, so it goes down just like the bracket, like I said. But it's so it's one on one, so you get to the final and then you get the 
same thing, five minutes, you hit your six balls. Except, I'm sorry, the finals is a shootout where you had eight, the top eight guys all hit, and whoever wins, you know, is the champion. And in 2001, I had won in 95, my first one, which I really consider I, I got kind of lucky on that. But um, so it was six years after, so you get a five-year exemption to the to the tournament you don't have to qualify. Well, I had run out of my exemption. Mm-hmm. And so the, the long drivers of America gave me a special exemption because of my accomplishments, you know, and, and they put me in. And uh, so it came down. I, I missed, I actually came out of the loser's bracket and had to fight twice as hard to get back to the final. So I get to the final and they draw, do a blind draw and I'm the last hitter. And, so I'm watching all these guys hit, and I'm over at the side. They got a range on the side, and I'm hitting. And, man, I was just – I had this telephone pole at the end of the range. It was about 500 yards, and I was hitting the ball right at that pole and solid. And I was hitting it so good and far that I thought, there is no way anybody's going to beat this. I'm hitting it too good. And I was already starting to get excited because I thought, you know, I'm going to win. And I had done a lot of mental um, preparation, too, with visualization and stuff. I was always a big believer in that. And mm-hmm. so I had conditioned my mind to pursue only winning and seeing myself win and all that stuff. So I, I was out there hitting those balls. And then the guy that was in the lead was one of my best friends, Brian Pavlet. And he walked by me. And he was in the lead. And he was nervous. He walked by real quiet, and he started picking up tees and snapping them. And uh, he snapped one, two, and then three and four. And finally, I turned around, and I looked at him, and I said, Padlet. I said, come here. He goes, no, man, I'm nervous. I said, no, 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 get your, you know, you know, you know what over here. So he walks over, and I looked him right in the face. I said, look, man, whatever happens, happens. You know, it's nothing personal. He goes, well, you better hit it hard because I killed that one. I said, I will. I turned around and walked back up. And I got up there, and I mean, I was hitting so good. I was barely missing the grid. I picked the left side, I picked the right side, and I couldn't get the right bounce. And the last ball comes up, and I stood behind it, and I looked over at the clock, and I had a minute 26 left. And so I had all these sponsors that, you know, they pay you when you're on TV, right? So I'm standing there with these logos, and I just stood there because I had over a minute left. And, you know, the meter's running on all that exposure for those sponsors. And I I stood there, and I closed my eyes, and I visualized that shot. And I knew that the the grid was like a checkerboard. You'd have a soft spot and a hard spot. So there's some luck involved. And I told myself, look, I'm going to hit one low, and trap it a little bit, hit a low bullet, so it won't matter what it hits. It's going to bound forward. And I saw it in my mind, and then I just walked up and pulled the trigger and hit the exact ball that I imagined. And I watched it in flight, and it hit the hit hit at three, uh, three fifty or something. And then it took a big bounce and rolled out past him. He was at three seventy three. And I hit it 377 or something like that. And uh, on the last ball of the entire competition, and they called it the greatest shot in the history of the sport because of all the pressure. And I really didn't feel the pressure because I had prepared for it. 
And I had gone through the scenario in my mind a thousand or more times. And so as far as I was concerned, all I had to do was execute and it was over. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that's once, once I saw it go past the 373, I went nuts. I went, cause all that pent up excitement and, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you were, when you played, you were always pretty, pretty reserved and stoic and stuff. But once something happened that changed the, the outcome, you, you went ape nuts, you know? And so that's what I did because I knew it was over and uh -huh. I had done it. And, uh, that's the only time I ever let out any kind of burst of emotion. And Hey, I love that story. And I just love, um, your buddy guarantee you, I thought he probably thought it was over. And he, did. He, talk, he talked a little shit to you before you went up there and hit it. Um, which is, hey, you don't ever do that with the beast. I'll tell you right now, because uh, he can, he can, he can flip a switch uh, as well. But I will tell you, as you know, somebody that can relate, you never celebrate until it's a for sure thing. Yeah. Because I've seen too many. Okay, yeah. ninety-eight percent of the time we're going to win. Well, I've seen that two percent, a little more than what you know it, it would end up being two percent. So I'm always very careful to pick and choose when to celebrate. Um, but also, you know, I, Sean, you got an incredible work ethic. And I know a lot of people, you know, ask me where I get my work ethic from. And, I, you know, it's something that I've struggled with because I've never really understood. Well, I just thought hardworking was something everybody should do. And I think it's, I think it's actually coming from our community, Poplar Bluff, and being raised there and being around a lot of hard workers. I, that had a big impact on me. What would you say, because I know you are an extremely hard worker and I've always respected that and looked up to you uh, for that, but where would you connect the dot with that? You know, that's that's a hard one because I never had to uh, manufacture that. It was it was innate inside of me because in Popper Bluff is a, is a great place to raise kids and it's a great town, but you, people don't get impressed too easy and, you know, they hold you down and you keep you humble and grounded because uh, you have to prove yourself. And, you know, I, all through junior high and high school, you know, there were certain groups of kids that were on the teams and, and that was kind of the way it was. And when you try to break into that, they're hard on you. And, mm -hmm. you know, I got bullied and teased a lot, even though I had the toughest two brothers in the County, two older brothers that, you know, would, leave some pain on people if they did anything wrong. But the, uh, you know, I, I had to work my tail off just to get into sports and Papa bluff, you know, they set the bars pretty high and, and, uh, that taught me, I learned how to pursue something with every ounce of my being because, and I don't know if it's Papa bluff, I'm just drawing at straws here, but you know, I, when I wanted something, I just threw everything I had into it mm -hmm. and I was determined. And, and I told people my freshman year, there were kids in junior high jumping higher than me in a pole vault. And I remember telling them, I'm going to break the school record and they'd laugh at me and whatever. And, you know, and I ended up doing it and, uh, I pole vaulted every day. I built a pit in my backyard and, and I jumped every day and all day long. And I ended up breaking the school record and, you know, 
I learned how hard work pays off. And, you know, I always had this mentality that, you know, one more when I was training, I'm going to hit one more or I'm going to lift one more rep or, and I'd lift that when I'd say one more and I just one more myself to death. And, and, uh, I think that work ethic is true. Work ethic is comes from drive internal drive. And, and you're right, Tyler, you know, all of our, the athletes in our family have all have that, that, uh, that quality. And I don't know if you can really, uh, put any terms on it or origins or anything. I, I just think we were all, uh, just born with that. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. And you know, I'm going to go a little deeper here and I usually don't do stuff like this, but you know, I, sometimes I have a little bit of anxiety and everyone views anxiety as a negative, but also anxiety can be a positive. I think uh, a lot of my work ethic comes from the anxiety of failing and knowing mm-hmm. that failure is a possibility. And, you know, when I look at your story, um, you know, on your, you had five years of an exemption from the, uh, long drive, uh, world champion committee. And then, you know, you get in there on the sixth year and you literally have to fight, uh, for everything. And so yeah. maybe that anxiety drove you, uh, to, you know, putting everything you possibly had into getting back to that world championship. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's a good thing. And also like, I want to, you know, ask you about like as a long driver, cause a lot of people, um, won't understand, you know, I saw it and I know you very well, how hard you worked and how dedicated you were. How many balls were you hitting a day? I think this is going to floor people when you tell them well, you know, how much time does. you spent. And, and, and I have no reason to exaggerate. I can just tell you that right off the bat, but I would, my day would consist of going out in the morning around eight or eight or nine or something, because of people would start off on number one playing golf. And then that meant if I started on number nine hitting balls, I had about two two hours, maybe two and a half hours before the first group came through on 10. So I would hit drives for you know, on this par five for three hours, two hours, or whatever, until I saw them coming. And then I would move over to uh, 18, and I would hit another two hours. And that was – that was just my routine every day. And then I, then I would go to the, get lunch, go to the driving range and I would hit balls all afternoon, all with the driver. But I, and I decided I was going to, one time a doctor asked me, he said, how many balls do you hit a day? I was like, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I hit, I, what I do is I hit in groups of six, just like we do in competition. And I, I played a game with myself called move the towel. So I'd hit a long ball and I'd go down there and I'd put a towel in the fairway. And my my whole being for the rest of the day was to keep moving that towel because I wanted to be the longest at the end of the day. And that way that trained me. I called it being in hitting shape that no matter how tired I was, I could still hit it as far as I did when I was fresh. And I think that trained me for competition because people don't realize how grueling uh, the world championship is because, you know, I used to arrive two weeks early to get myself acclimated to the climate because we were out in Nevada. And so I didn't want to have any jet lag. I didn't want to have any issues with hydration with the, without the, I mean, I went into every single detail that you could to practice that thing. So when I got there, I wanted to be the best prepared guy in the entire competition. 
And if I could do that, then I could look at myself in the mirror and say, you deserve this. You mm-hmm. deserve this more than anybody. You've worked harder. You, you've, you put in the hours and it, you, you know what? It's yours. You, you are going to take it because you've earned it. Mm-hmm. Nobody here has put in the work you have. And that, believe me, when you start believing yourself in the mirror, you, you can't believe the level of confidence you have. And you don't get nervous and you don't feel pressure when you're prepared. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. when you're not prepared that you feel pressure. Yeah. I'm just executing my plan. And that's what I did. I know I got off track there a little bit, but no. uh, you know, it's funny that the, the, uh, the 2005, my last world championship, I was 43 years old and people, I was on a hall of fame exemption because I'd gotten inducted to the hall of fame a few years before. Well, nobody was counting on me to do anything. And, you know, I would still been training and I remember the night before in the casino, uh, my wife is night before the finals. My wife, Karen and I were in the casino walking by and I, I looked over and I saw these two guys kind of giggling and pointing at me. And I, I said, and cause I'm always looking for motivation. Right. So mm-hmm. I walked over there and I said, what's up guys. What's so funny. Oh, nothing. I'm like, no, really. What's so funny. And so oh, well, he was saying that, you know, you, you know, you got in on a, hall of fame exemption and you're older and you know that keeps a younger guy that could possibly win out of the competition and i'm like oh really i said that's interesting so you guys don't think the old beast has got it anymore huh and they're like well i mean time it's you know it's trash you know time is getting the best of you i was like okay cool and i turned around and walked out i told karen i said look i'm taking it tomorrow i'm taking it that's all i needed man those guys laughing at me and calling me. One of them called me Grandpa. Are you oh. serious? <laughs> so the next night they have the finals, and the guys in the lead is with the guy that called me Grandpa. And they had a hot seat right behind the tee where he's sitting while I'm hitting. And I hit my first ball. He flew his ball. He ended up at 369. He flew at 357. It rolled out 369. And my first ball flew 377 and backed up a foot. And I turned around to look at that dude, and he was already gone. <laughs> and, then I hit a, and then I hit another one that was 376, and I hit two balls that would have won. And then the, the guy that had been standing with him, Italian guy, he was so funny. He came up to me after the deal, and he goes, man, I told that dude. You should not have said that to the beast. You shouldn't. And he told everybody around, he's like, do not push that guy and it was pretty funny but, Man, but that, I, yeah. I love that story i can see you uh walking over and be like hey how's pawpaw doing now or something like hey come <laughs> yeah. here son uh that is hey man i, I love that story and i beast i know if anybody talks shit to you I, you know it's the same way i mean you don't want to do that and uh <laughs> i love that story so you did hit a a, a ball you know past 400 yards in competition was that is that the uh is that the one? Well, no. The, the uh, I hit I hit four fifty five one year in the championship, and then I hit I hit another one four fifty five in Toronto, Canada, in the international international championship on the final ball, by the way, and uh, beat Jason Zubak, who's the Michael Jordan of our sport, and uh, but the the first one I in the ninety seven I was runner up. And I hit the first drive in the finals over 400 yards. 
and uh, they had a sand trap in the center of the grid because they didn't think anybody was going to hit it that far. <laughs> and so I was on a tee, and I hit my first ball, 405. It rolled over the lip and went down in a sand trap, and it stopped the ball. And then the other guy hits one. I flew at 388. It rolled out to 405 in the trap. The other guy flew at 382, and it rolled out on the green and just trickled out past me. So that, mm. that cost me dearly. Hey, so, you know, I know you've been all over the world um, long driving. You know, how was that? I mean, someone coming from Poplar Bluff and then going all over Asia and just, you know, I can only imagine because I played basketball in China and being from a town of 17,000 and going to 17 million, uh, that can really open your eyes. Did you enjoy that? Yeah. Well, you know, I went to China and uh, I did, there was one trip I did. I did 32 exhibitions in 16 days in eight countries. And it was for my equipment sponsor. And I remember one funny part of it is, you know, the, these guys, when they take pictures of me, they had, they had had long drive uh, tournaments to find the longest 10 guys in each country. And then I was going to come in and, and they were going to hit against me. And I did all those deals and I, nobody came within 50 yards of me in the entire deal. But if you see the pictures of me lined up with those guys, they're all like five, six. <laughs> and I'm six, four, six, five, depending on what I eat during the day. But <laughs> I'm, I'm up there and I'm hitting at this range in Beijing. And the range is about 265 to the fence. The fence is about 80 feet high. Well, I, I told the guy, the, my host, I said, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be hitting him over that net. He goes, no, nobody hit over that net. I'm like, okay. Well, they had the net. They had a grassy area, a parking lot, and an apartment building. And so I start screaming them into that building. And I can see them hitting the walls of the building. But these people, do not they don't think that ball can go that far. So they're not even looking up there. Because my balls are flying over that fence at 100 feet. And I'm hitting them, and I see one of them about seven floors up hit this window, and it took the window out, and the curtains knocked down. And so I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so I start really smoking them into that building. So about 10 minutes later, I look down at the bottom <laughs> of the building, and the door opens, and this Chinese dude comes running out there waving his hands. And he runs all the way across the parking lot up to the net, turns sideways, goes down, goes all the way down. He's screaming. He comes down. Everybody's watching him. They're like, what happened? And uh, he walks up, and he's yelling at the translator and all that stuff. He comes up. He goes, you have to, you have to stop. You, you tear up building. You kill someone. And I was like, okay, we're done. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty cool. But, yeah, the, the, I had a lot, of, uh, a lot of fun over there. It was pretty grueling, too. But <laughs> I actually broke my hand in Singapore. And uh, in the middle of a hitting a deal, I broke a bone in the back of my left hand and uh, they, they wouldn't let me quit. So I just wrapped it up and did the rest of the trip with a broken hand. But uh, anyway, yeah, that was fun. It was fun going all over the world and, you know, going to Dublin and hitting at the Irish Open and uh, Amsterdam. And let's see, I went to Caracas, Venezuela. I mean, I went, I went a lot of places. Yeah. 
So, Beast, you mentioned hurting your hand. And I know one of the constants we've been talking about, Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods in the last couple of podcasts, but the work ethic that goes into it also can take a toll on your body. And I know for someone who is swinging that many times a day, I imagine that must have had some medical effect as well on you, right? Well, man, you, <laughs> I don't think you have time in this program. Pablo got no clue. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm in so much pain every day, it's ridiculous. I've, <laughs> I've got a, I've had five back back surgeries had a neck fusion with a plate and two screws lower back fusion i had a discectomy at my thoracic joint had a knee surgery i had you know my my problems with my feet came from pole vaulting because sometimes i had a had a trouble finding the pit mm-hmm. and landed on my feet so i broke a lot of bones in my feet and uh i separated my right shoulder in uh 2010 world championship on the downswing and uh that was painful and i had to have surgery on that so it's it's a constant battle for me because uh i i just can't the the reason i retired from long driving is not that i wasn't still competitive it was that i couldn't prepare Mm -hmm. i couldn't i couldn't deal with with the 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 preparation that is it takes such a toll on you so that's that's kind of why I had to quit doing it because I, I just I mean right now I'm dealing with pain, and I have people ask me, you know, would you do it again to go through all this pain? I said, you're damn right I would. I'm a three time world champion, pal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, for Sean to turn his neck, you got to have a wrench to <laughs> unscrew a little few things. Well, uh, it's a wrench or a screwdriver. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Hey, um, the other question um, I was gonna have. Is uh, Sean at Beast? You got a unique tip, man. You can eat more food than anybody I've ever met. Uh, tell people like you don't understand. Nobody can beat my uncle Sean in an eating contest. I know you still don't eat like that, but just talk about that. I know you had some stories on the road where you just yeah. I had a long drive competition in Louisiana. Uh, in Baton Rouge, I think, and there's a real famous barbecue joint there called tj's and all of us long drivers had this big whole room to ourselves and a big table we were going to have all you can eat ribs and when i heard that i was like look out boys because i haven't been eating today (laughs) and i sat at the head of the table and uh they bring in that first rack and i swear it wasn't 30 seconds i mean these are full racks with big ribs and I ate that first one down before they'd even served everybody. <laughs> and I ordered a pitcher of beer for myself. So Beast. I said, can I get another rack? They brought me another rack. I wolfed that one down. They brought another one. I ended up eating six full racks of ribs and two pitchers of beer. And the cook comes out. When I finished that sixth rack, he comes out with the owner. And they say, well, you just tied the record for rib eating. And I said, all the guys were like, oh, yeah, beast, beast, all this stuff. You got to do another one. got to do another one. I said, well, who's got the record at six? They said, Shaquille O'Neal. <laughs> I said, and I just took my hand up and I pointed. I said, bring me another rack. <laughs> God, I, I love that. And I ate that other rack and ate seven racks. And they came out, took pictures of me with the owner. And so that was pretty cool. I love that story. And, you know, two pictures. You're more of a – four pitcher guy back in the day too. Uh, um, but the other thing, man, uh, B said I was going to say is, did you play a, a round of golf with Arnold Palmer? 
Yes, I did. Tell everybody that story. I love that one. Well, it's I've played with a lot of famous people, and I would say the most uh, that I got out of playing with somebody was with Arnold Palmer. And, you know, the I had been in Orlando to shoot a commercial for my equipment sponsor. And so we went out on a hole early in the morning, and they did all the, a couple hours of uh, photo shooting and stuff. Well, anyway, I was on my – I was supposed to go home that afternoon and catch a flight. And uh, so my bags were over at the backdrop, even my luggage. And I was going to catch a flight at 2.30 or something. Well, anyway, I'm waiting for a cab to take me to the airport. And I look over on the practice screen because I'm at Bay Hill for that commercial. And I look over and I see Arnold Palmer putting on the practice screen. And he's only maybe 60 yards away. And I'm like, I've got to try to meet him. This is a bucket list day. If I can shake Palmer's Arnold Palmer's hand, uh, this will make my this will make my career. I mean, he's my idol. So I walk over and I'm kind of walking towards him, but a little bit away from him in case he gives me that go to hell look. I'm busy, <laughs> and so I, if he did, I'd just say, "Hey, I'm just walking over here, man. What's your problem?" But <laughs> he looked up and he goes, "How are you, young man?" Of course, I turned to him and I start walking towards him. I said, "I'm great, Mr. Palmer. How are you?" He's pretty good. Working on a little putting here. We're talking, and he's he's got this twenty five yard, twenty five foot putt, and he's just draining one after the other, and he's got a caddy rolling the ball back to him, and so he starts talking to me, and he goes, "Because uh, we exchanged names, and you know, he said hey, I'm Arnold Palmer, and I'm like, really, I'm Sean Fister. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, he's putting these putts, and he says, Sean, uh, how long are you in town? Actually, I said to him first, I said, you know, Mr. Palmer, the year I was born was probably one of your best years on tour. And he stands up and he looks at me and he goes, oh, what year was that? I says, 1962. And he goes, he looks up and he goes, yeah, that was a pretty good year. He's making these putts. And so he says to me, he goes, how long are you in town? And I mean, I'm getting ready to catch a flight. I said, oh, a few more days. <laughs> and uh, he goes, well, how'd you like to play golf with me tomorrow? I said, that, Mr. Palmer, that would make my career. And he picks up his golf ball, and he says, come over here with me. So we walk over to the starter shack, which is between the driving range and the first tee. And it's like an old theater thing. It's got a plexiglass window. It's got a little cutout here. The old guy in there, he looked like he was about 115. And Mr. Palmer looks in there, and he says, do we have room for one more tomorrow? And the guy looks at Mr. Palmer, and he goes, well, who is he? Mr. Palmer leans in that window and he said, he's the world long drive champion. He's on my team. And the guy snaps his head back and he goes, well, I guess we got room then. <laughs> so Mr. Palmer looks to me and he says, Sean, can you make an 11-17 tea time? I said, Mr. Palmer, I'll be here at 8.30. <laughs> he winked at me and he's that a boy. So anyway, that that's how that happened. But it was so awesome hanging around with him. And I mean, I don't know how much time you guys have, but that's uh, – there, uh, there are other stories with that, but he was yeah, awesome. Go on, and we have time for the other story because I really like this part. Uh, yeah, well, it's one we're of my favorite parts. I get there early, and by the way, I'm as I left. You know, I had to rent a car to stay the extra day, so I'm I'm over there, and, it, and for some reason, the car didn't have any gas in it, which is weird. But I went and put gas in the car, and. I look over and there's another guy pumping gas next to me and he's just standing there, you know, with his hand on the nozzle. And I had the power window and 
it was a ta- that's right, it was a taxi, and he was getting gas. So I powered the window down. I looked over at the guy, and I was like, how's it going, man? And he's like pumping his gas. He looks over and he goes, well, p- pretty good, I-, I guess. I said, well, what are you doing tomorrow? He said, I'm working. I said, really? I'm playing golf with Arnold Palmer tomorrow. I went ahead and rolled the window up. <laughs> Shut the window on. <laughs> I felt so good doing that. He was like, that guy's an asshole. <laughs> Perfect. So anyway, I show up early, and, and uh, we end up going out and playing, and we're on this one hole. The first hole, we're up there, and three guys are telling me where to aim. There's a slight dog leg left. These guys are telling me where to put the ball and stuff. Mr. Palmer's messing with his golf clubs, and he comes up. He doesn't even look. He says, Sean, I don't care where they told you to hit it. Hit it right at that willow tree right there and kill it. I said, yes, sir, Mr. Palmer. And I hit that ball, and it landed about – five feet off the green and on the fringe. And he, he was like, now you know who to listen to. And so we got on, I think the third hole. And one of the guys goes, you know, John Daly hit one over that trap down there. It's about three forty carry. And he hit, he hit it over that trap. And I'm like, Oh, here we go. Cause I always heard stuff like that. So I said, well, that's John Daly for you. And so I got up there and I got a little bit of a tailwind. I'm like, oh boy. And I, cause I love a tailwind. And I just sat back and just swung as hard as I could, got the ball up in the air. It flew onto the fringe of the green, and which airmailed Daly's drive by 60 yards. <laughs> and these guys were just unbelievable. They were just, they couldn't believe I hit the ball that far. And Mr. Palmer never said a word. And I'm sitting there going, man, I know he's seen a lot. Has he really seen that? He ain't even saying anything. We get up there. I'm a, I'm off the fringe. Mr. Palmer hits his approach shot. He's about 30 feet from the pin. And so I, I walk up, and I go to pull the pin out, and I start to lay it down. He says, hold on there, Sean. He walks all the way over to me, and he says, Sean, I believe in etiquette. And I was like, what did I do? He said, you don't put pins on the greens. I'm like, well, I'd never even heard of that. And uh, he stands there and he's staring at me, waiting for my response. And I'm, I was twice his height, pretty much. And I looked down, I said, Mr. Palmer, I can tell you this much, I'll never do it again. And he winked at me and said, that a boy. He walks back, he drains that putt. He's walking <laughs> towards the ball and he's staring at me and he just gives me a wink. One of the coolest things that have ever happened to me. It was awesome. So we get, well, oh, and we get done playing. And he invites me up to his office. And I go up there and I said, Mr. Palmer, we're talking. He's asked how's business and all that. And before I stood up, I said, Mr. Palmer, would you sign a scorecard for me? He says, sure. So he reaches in. And mind you, he hadn't said anything about how far I hit the ball. He gets the scorecard. He's, he's writing on it. I'm like, well, that's more than his name. And he folds it and hands it to me. So I, I'm not going to open it and read it in front of him. So I put it in my pocket. And I'm walking out the uh parking lot and it's this thing is pounding pounding what did he write what did he write and i'm like oh man so i get it out as i'm walking i open it up and it says great drive arnold palmer <laughs> it was so cool and I, I always thought maybe he was upstairs looking out the window watching me see read it but yeah he was he was pretty cool and I, you know my second son was born about four weeks after that trip and we named him palmer 
because of Mr. Bomber. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I love that story because I remember you telling that story. I remember uh, Karen was pregnant at that time, and yeah. uh, you're like, man, I need to get back. But also, yeah. I mean, I want to play golf with Arnold Palmer. Uh, <laughs> I love that story. And, and also, I like the part about, you know, John Daly. I know you and him are really tight. Yeah. Uh, how often do you have you? When's the last time you talked to him? And um, mm. yeah. I, I texted him. I mean, I usually reach out to him every month or so. I mean, I don't want to, you know, be a pastor or anything. He's, he's, it's one of those things that when, and I'm sure you know this too, Tyler, that people you meet that are in the public eye, stuff like that, you may go two or three years without seeing them, but as soon as you see them, it's like you never left. It's, you just, hit right off. And, uh, that's kind of the way it is with John. And mm-hmm. he's, uh, he's always been a great supporter and of me. And, uh, he'll, he wrote the forward to my book, the long drive Bible. And, uh, you know, he's always, I've had people, I'll have people come to me and say, you know, I met John Daly and, and I knew you. And I said, I, I knew you. And he says, yeah, he always says really, really positive things. So he's a good guy. Yeah. I remember, uh, going over to your house in Charleston, you have the golf cart that's got like, uh, it's either it's so basically it goes as fast as you want. There's like no regulator on that. You can just hit the gas and go about 40. I always thought that was hilarious. It was like a, what was it? A mini Hummer? Yeah, it's it was a Hummer and John gave that to me. And uh, (laughs) that's awesome. So I still have it. So it, it, uh, it can flat out move and it holds the front cooler holds 36 beers. And the cooler behind the seat holds another 18. So it was custom made for Big John. <laughs> I was about to say, what'd you do for the uh, the second round, like the back nine at the refill? <laughs> um, hey, Beast, tell everybody what you're up to now. Uh, I know you're in uh, Myrtle Beach. And uh, just tell everybody what you're doing. Well, I'm, I'm running uh, the clinics and academies for the Dustin Johnson Golf School, which is at um, – TPC Myrtle Beach, and uh, I do private lessons as well. But and that keeps me pretty busy because I do about twelve to fourteen clinics a week, and then uh, I'm teaching in the other times. So it's when it's hot like this, it's pretty grueling. But the facility mm-hmm. is absolutely PG. It's it's one of the best facilities I've ever seen, and I've been all over the world. So it's uh, it's immaculate. It's tour level. It's got all the bells and whistles and uh, they have that we have three track man track mans there, which is most facilities don't have any. And the, the best ones have one and we have three and, uh, we've got some of the best, uh, awarded staff around. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty special. Yeah. Um, if you guys are in the area, look up my uncle, the beast. You want to learn how to hit the ball farther and straighter, Yeah. uh, you know, look into it. But, um, I get, we're going to kind of wrap up here a little bit, but, uh, I always ask everybody, do you have any advice for young kids trying to pursue golf or getting a long driving? What would you say to them or what's something that you could go back to, uh, your younger self and kind of, um, you know, you wish you would have known this a little bit. Um, a while ago. Well, I'm going to be honest with you. I think that, you know, kids, kids need to be exposed to a lot of different sports and you need to let them, and this is more for parents, but I think that you got to let the kids pick what pick and choose what they want to do. Cause if you start getting involved and you've got some 
you know, some accomplishments that you didn't have and you want your kids to do it, it that's dangerous because you're pushing. You got to let mm-hmm. the kids kind of you expose it, expose the kids to sports. But if they don't like them, don't push them. They'll find mm-hmm. it. Trust me, they'll find what they want to do. And then you can get behind them. Um, but as far as for uh, the future, you know, I think it's going to naturally come to them. I mean, you, you, when you were around the college basketball team, when, when your dad, Gene, was the doctor, the team doctor, you know, they had a little tight goal in there and you were four or five years old and you just wanted to be around basketball. Mm-hmm. And it, that was a passion for you from, from way early and it yes. never left you. And uh, that's that's why you are who you are, and you've done so well with it. And it's not like it's you've been pushed or you know you've received pressure from other people. You have always done it because you love it, and I, I'm the same way. So mm-hmm. you know, nobody had to push you to go to basketball practice. Yeah. Well, hey, Beast, thanks for coming on, and uh, you know you've yeah, shit. You're my uncle, man. You've uh, meant a lot to me, and uh, you know, it means a lot that you came on and shared your story. So, uh, I really appreciate it, man. And, uh, let's play some golf soon. Yeah, man. I got a couple more stories I want to tell on you though. Sometime (laughs) we'll have you back on sometime. Yeah. I want to talk talk about when, when, uh, go up to your house and you, you came around the door, the wall with a cat and you hold it by the tail and say, look, we got a cat. (laughs) hey (laughs) he was about uh, five years old he had that cat by the tail he goes we got a cat that poor kid was just like ah that was pj man oh that was you buddy all right all right thanks beast all right buddy yep i'll talk to you see it was great having the beast on honestly guys uh the beast he's one of the best uncles and um got a lot of good stories so we'll definitely have to have him back on but pablo it is a cookie review time all right uh you know the cookie review i've really enjoyed this and i didn't realize how expensive cookies are (laughs) what do you think a price point would be that you would pay for a cookie (sighs) depends on how hungry i was but i would think that you know like a good chocolate chip cookie you know, like two bucks? Two bucks. I'm right there with you. Yeah. Uh, two bucks. So we got the chocolate chip deluxe okay. from Insomnia Cookies. And I got six of them. And somehow we only have two for the review. <laughs> Actually, one and a half. <laughs> and they were three fifty per, um, which is, you know, it's, I mean, we're talking, that's absurd level. Yeah. But... I will say I've already had a few of them, and it's a damn good fucking cookie. All I right. got to say, I'm interested. I want you to take a bite. All you right. give me your score. Here we go. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Solid nine. Um, I love this kind of cookie. This is, but you know, I got to say, though, remember the first one we did, the cookie was nice and chunky like this, where it's nice and crisp on the outside, soft on the inside. A lot of good chocolate. I love a cookie like this. Pablo, I agree with you. Now, this cookie, it has a like a, you know, a little bit of a crisp on the outside, but when you bite into that thing, it is, you know, it's got that kind of that cookie dough. And yeah. the, I, okay, so I'm going to directly compare this 
uh, to crumble. Okay. Chocolate chip cookie is okay. That is a comparison because everyone has these little niche cookies, and everyone's getting a little creative and wild with the cookies. The chocolate chip cookie is the best cookie, and it's also everyone has chocolate chip cookie. I, I give it eight point eight. And it's the highest rating I've ever given a cookie. <laughs> and I love this cookie. It would be higher if it wasn't 350. Um, oh, we got to bring that point down. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're in a college town. Um, but I will tell you guys, the chocolate chip deluxe, the big boy uh, chocolate chip cookie, it is much better than crumbles from insomnia. This is a very good cookie. Um, and so as of now, this is the leader in the cookie review. We have many more to come. You guys have been hitting us up, DMing us. Pablo's getting requests. I'm getting like, hey, try this cookie, try this cookie. Okay, now I, I want to you guys to do this. When you guys give us a cookie recommendation, detach your feelings from that cookie because we give on- honesty is a big deal at SHWW, and we will not give you a false cookie review unless – we get a sponsor and they pay us. I mean, it, you know, yeah, we can, we, you know, we can make a, you know, we can, we can work something out. But hey, we're not affiliated with any cookie company, and so we'll give straight honesty. Insomnia Cookie is the leader. Pablo, what you think? Yep, agreed, one hundred percent. Anything else, Big Hawk? Stay safe. Stay safe.